Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Acts chapter 27, and I want to read the first few verses of that chapter. The Bible says, and when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band, and entering into a ship of Adramitium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia. One our, uh, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. The next day we touched at Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. When he had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when he had sailed slowly, when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Snidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salmone, and hardly passing it, came to a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. That is a lot of geography. That is a lot of geography, and we're going to look at a map tonight because I think sometimes we'll skip over those things real quickly. Blah, 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 place, place, boom, boom, right? So we're going to look at a map tonight with some geography. And I want to talk to us tonight about unadvised sailing. Unadvised sailing. Hallelujah. Father, I come to you tonight. We need your help in this place. I know, God, it's midweek and people, Lord, are perhaps tired. God, they have dealt with their own set of problems personally, Lord Jesus, in their homes and families. And they have drugged themselves perhaps to the house of God just for a place of refuge for just a couple of hours. I pray, oh God, that you're able to help us, Lord Jesus, in the teaching of your word tonight. God, bring all clarity to my mind, I pray, Lord. And Bring, Lord Jesus, God, adequate words, I pray, Father, to my lips. I pray, oh, Lord, this evening, help us to lean in just for a little bit, God, to look at your word, God. Minimize the distractions, God, that are in this house, God, whether they be apparent or whether they be in our minds. And I pray, oh, God, that you're able to help us in the next little while. And I'll not fail to thank you and praise you for it. In the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. The church say amen. As you're seated, our candlelight service is next Wednesday. Our candlelight service is next Wednesday. Amen. We are already that close upon the holiday season here. Look at your neighbor and say, unadvised. Unadvised selling. Amen. When we talk about selling, we talk about a voyage. We talk about going on a journey. We talk about that historically. Writers, poets uh, throughout the ages have compared our lives to voyages at sea or journeys or trips that someone may have taken. 
As a matter of fact, they use verbiage like this in their writings and in their poems. They talk about how at all costs an individual may want to avoid shipwreck. It's not that the person is on a literal ship. It's just talking about in life. Just don't want to, you know, involve yourself in shipwreck. They have talked about the storms of life. You may have even talked about the storms of life. You might even be in some storms of life tonight. Amen. Uh, we talked about uh, different times, poets and writers, about using the wind to our advantage and harnessing the wind in ourselves. So there's been a lot of writing throughout the history of the world that have centered around voyages at sea or trips made by sea. Luke, in his writing, uh, is very detailed in this account of the storm that Paul and the 275 other passengers that are on the boat that he is upon uh, face. And it's kind of a breath of fresh air, actually, to us, uh, hopefully to everybody tonight, that uh, after trial, after trial, after trial that we've looked at for the past several weeks to actually come to uh, something that someone might say is interesting. Amen. To see something being a little topsy-turvy in a storm that's taking place. And Luke, he's very detailed. Uh, Luke's not a mariner. He's not somebody that is uh, well acquainted, perhaps, with all the dynamics of the sea, but he's very detailed in this account. And really what we find from this account, and it's quite lengthy, some 43, 44 verses that are in this chapter, uh, what we learn really is it fits very well in with the rest of Paul's story, and that is this. Here's just yet another difficulty that the apostle Paul is going to have to endure in order to accomplish the will of God for his life. As simple as that may sound, here it is again, another difficulty that he must face, he must endure, he must go through. Perhaps that's uh, the key to any difficulty is not stopping, not putting up a mailbox, but going through, going through. It's something that he must come through. But as we all know tonight, and as it would be in a literal sea, or as we would make it applicable to our lives of the storms that assail us, and that is this, not all storms are equal. Not all storms equal. I'll even go to as far to say this, that your storm is just as detrimental to you as my storm may be to me, although you might consider my storm to be nothing. We, you cannot in the church house begin to compare storms. I can't compare Brother Mason's storm, whatever he's going through, to whatever Brother Terry's going through, to whatever the Trouts have went through, through whatever I'm going through in my life. Say, so you know what, they don't have nothing going on. Because if you start to compare storms, you are in deep danger. You, you cannot compare storms. The storm that you are going through individually is just as detrimental to you. What you may think the other person's isn't much is just as much detrimental to them. Do not compare storms. And so all storms are not created equal. They are not the same. Uh, the intensity of some as it would appear uh, even in your own life. What you're going through right now might not be as it, what the last storm was that you went through. You might call this one a little bit more intense or maybe it's less intense than the last thing that you found your life in. But nevertheless, the underlying reason for the storms that enter our life are not identical as well. The reason why storms come into our life or this particular storm may be in your life right now uh, might not be identical to the reason why the last storm had entered your life. So they do not enter our lives all for the same purpose and they are not always the same. But I guarantee you this, they are real to whoever is experiencing them. 
And so we know the apparent reason, and we have problems grappling with this, but we know the apparent reason for any storm, whether the literal storm that Paul and them face or the storms that arise in our life is this, God permitted No matter how negative it may go, no matter how, how much must be, quote-unquote, lost during it, God permitted it. That's hard to grapple with. For negative things in our lives and wanting to hang a, 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 a hook there that's called blame that we can just throw everything on. That's hard to contend with our lives. Say, well, the devil brought it. Well, if the devil brought it, God permitted the devil to bring it. Whether, whatever the dynamics is, it all goes back to the permission or allowance of God into our lives. As a matter of fact, the psalmist David said in Psalms 135, speaking of God, he said, he bringeth the wind out from his treasures. Most storms on sea or on land many times have involved the wind. And God says, they are in my treasure and I release them at my will. Whether it's the north wind, south wind, east or west wind, I permit them, I bring them out of my treasures at my will. Belongs to God. It's permitted, it's allowed by God. But what's important, and we've looked at this in times past, but we must again tonight for chapter 27, what's important is to assess why God has allowed the storm in our lives. Why God has allowed the storm into our lives. Number one, maybe the storm is in your life because it's your fault it's in your life. Number two, maybe the storm is in your life because it's God's fault. Now, we know all storms are allowed and permitted by God, but I'm meaning maybe God placed it there because God's wanting to teach us some lesson, something we're supposed to learn from this storm that we're going through. And I say God's fault. I use the word fault very loosely. <laughs> I'm saying it's God's fault. Number three, maybe the storm is in your life due because it's somebody else's fault. Uh-huh. Maybe you're caught in a storm just by virtue of association with somebody. That really the storm is their fault because of your association with them. You're in the middle of it too. See, the storms sometimes come because they're your fault. Whenever Jonah put himself and the men on the ship that were headed to Tarshish, whenever they were on the Tarshish, and the Bible speaks of uh, the tempest and the wind that arose and the storm that took place on that boat, and he put those men's lives at jeopardy, and Jonah put his own life at jeopardy, we know with surety, according to the book of Jonah, that God permitted that wind or that wind, that storm to come. The Bible says, but the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea and there was a mighty tempest in the sea but while these sailors and uh, Jonah there is on this ship these boys start to cast lots they're trying to figure out what is the cause of this storm what's going on why is this all of a sudden here and then Jonah lifts his voice and he confesses among them in Jonah 1 12 for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you there's really two things here the storm then that happened on the boat that Jonah was on was there because it was Jonah's fault. 
Number two, the other people that were on the boat going through the storm were going through the storm because they were right now traveling with Jonah. Jesus, on the other hand, at a different period of time in New Testament Scripture, sent his disciples across uh, the Sea of Galilee, Tiberias. It's called by all the different cities that are around about it to the other side. And it was later in the night. The Bible says Jesus was alone on the land and he was praying. He could see his disciples out in the midst of the sea and they were toiling and they're rowing because the wind was contrary to them. And he walks out across the sea and they see him and they cry out to him and the storm that they were in wasn't the disciples' fault. Nope, wasn't none of their faults. It was a storm that was the invention of God. It was a storm that God had sent. But the question is, what was its purpose? And perhaps God was trying to teach his disciples a lesson in all this. He knew when he sent them across that water, he was going to be sending the storm after them. He knew that. Amen. But whenever they got into that storm, that storm was sent by God. And maybe he was wanting to teach them a lesson. And just I'm just putting these out here. Maybe perhaps a few of the lessons perhaps God was wanting to teach. Perhaps he wanted them to see that Jesus can walk on what troubled them. Because Jesus came walking to them out there on that stormy water. Perhaps he wanted them to understand that what's troubling you is what's under Jesus' feet. He can walk on what's troubling you. Or perhaps he wanted them to realize that crying out to Jesus during the storm is always the right thing to do. Those, just a couple things. Just a couple things. And so the storm that they were witnessing, that they were enduring, was not because of themselves, not because of someone else per se, but because God sent the storm. And it's always good to ask when God sends the storm, what am I supposed to be learning in this? Always good to ask. But the apostle Paul in Acts 27 was in a storm because some people did not adhere to his caution, did not adhere to his advice about the voyage they were on the majority of them wanted to find a more accommodating haven to winter at and as a result of all of this Paul in Acts 27 found himself caught in someone else's storm just as those sailors were caught in Jonah's storm Paul was caught in somebody else's storm Acts 27 and 1 just bear with me as we walk through this just a little bit here tonight the Bible says and when it was determined that we should sail into Italy they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius a centurion of Augustus's band Note the word we there in verse number one note the word we 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 have seen this at different times throughout the book of Acts that whenever that we shows back up we understand that Luke has shown back up the writer, the writer of Acts, Luke, he has shown back up. That's how he could say we because he's now a part of the whole scene and the whole scenario. Luke has shown back up and he's a part of the group again. Uh, we don't know for sure where, where Luke has been. 
uh, the last time that he left us, we weren't given indication as we had been at different times in Acts. Amen. But more than likely, he wasn't very far away uh, during Paul's imprisonment at, at Caesarea. Amen. He wasn't very far away. Perhaps, as a matter of fact, it, it, it is quite probable that he may have been close enough to Caesarea that he may have been one of those that visited Paul from now and again during his imprisonment. You'll remember that, that the officer allowed Paul to have guests. He, did, he let him have the liberty of having people come and minister to him. And it's quite capable that Luke may have been one of those that went and ministered to Paul during his imprisonment. But nevertheless, he is now right there a part of the group. He is with Paul as Paul is going to embark on this journey across the Mediterranean Sea to the land, to the country of Italy, and more particularly to the city of Rome. Nonetheless, the Bible says that Paul and this other group of prisoners, Paul isn't the only prisoner that's going on this little ship, but another group of prisoners are being handed over to Julius. The Bible says a centurion of Augustus band. So Paul's not, though, the only prisoner, but at the same token, Paul's not just any other prisoner. Do you hear what I'm saying? He, there was others there, but he's not just any other prisoner because he's a prisoner without any founded allegations against him. He, he's, he's a prisoner without any founded allegations against him. He's a prisoner headed to Rome because he made an appeal to Caesar. Uh, some of these other cats are probably on their way because they're guilty for the charges that's been laid against them and they are headed to Rome for execution. But Paul's headed there of his own volition because he's made an appeal unto Caesar. Amen. And the Bible says all of these are committed to the hands of Julius. He's a centurion. A centurion, uh, the word centurion basically tells us this, that this man is an officer over a hundred people. Thus that little prefix sent, just like we get our century, that means a hundred years. Amen. He's an officer over a hundred people. Not only that, he serves Caesar. He's of Augustus's band, Augustus Caesar. He serves Augustus's band. So this is pretty, this is pretty important. The Bible says, and entering, verse number two, and entering into the ship of Adramitium, we launch, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. Can you put my map up there and just leave it up the rest of the night in case, unless you need to go uh, into a scripture. Now, look at this. Isn't that a wonderful map? That might be small for some. But if, if we start right over here, remember Paul was in Jerusalem and right there, Caesarea, that's where he was imprisoned. He's getting on a ship right here. He's getting on a ship right here. And the Bible says it was a ship of Adramitium. Whenever it says that, later it'll talk about the ship of Alexandria. When it says ship of Adramitium or ship of Alexandria, it's telling you where the ship was from. And so if you look all the way up here, see that right there? Adramitium. That's where the ship that Paul is getting on, that is where the ship is from. And so it makes, it makes good sense then because these little ships, what they did, they were oftentimes called little coastal ships and they would hop around from place to place right here on the coast and, and they would deliver goods and they would pick up goods. And so this ship of Adramitium had already made its way down through here and it's quite possibly then that that ship is headed back home. And if so, that's great for Paul and those because they're headed over here to Italy. So if they're headed back this direction, that's heading them in the right direction where they need to go. See how important geography is to Acts chapter 27? Hmm? And so he, he, he's there from a ship of, of Adramitium, all right? Again, usually a, a coastal ship. Uh, it's a ship that's not meant for the open sea, all right? 
<laughs> it's not meant for the open sea. It's like, it'd be like you trying to take a bass boat and putting it on the ocean. Okay? <laughs> it, it's not meant for the open sea. It's headed the direction that they need to go, so it's good that they put him on there. And verse, verse number 2 even tells us that the plan of this ship, it was meaning to sail by the coast of Asia. See, here's Asia right there. See Asia? It's meaning to come back up here, and it was going to sail along the coast of Asia. That was its, its sailing plan, so to speak, was to get back up in that area. That is the ship. That's the coastal ship that Paul and these other prisoners, Julius, who was of the, the, the household or the commander of, of those of Caesar Augustus's uh, army, that's, that's them getting on this ship headed that direction. Toward Italy we go. Everything seems fine. Everything seems good. Then Luke clues us in on something else, though. Look at it. It says in verse 2, One Aristarchus, a Macedonian, the Thessalonica, being with us. Luke says there was, there was Aristarchus with us as well. Now, this is interesting that Aristarchus is there because Aristarchus has been mentioned already. We've studied this in Paul's past already in other writings in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, Paul mentions Aristarchus in some of his other writings of the epistles. He mentions his, him and Philemon. He mentions him in Colossians. In Philemon, Paul calls Aristarchus a fellow laborer. In, in Colossians, he calls Aristarchus a fellow prisoner. In Acts chapter 19, Aristarchus and another guy by the name of Gaius, the Bible called them traveling companions of Paul. And if you'll remember, whenever Ephesus was in uproar because they felt like their, their great, I'll call it this, their great goddess Diana was being despised. Remember, they wanted to find Paul, take him to the theater, rough him up, but they couldn't find him at the time, so they grabbed Aristarchus and Gaius because they knew they were companions of Paul and they were going to rough them up because Diana was being despised, but luckily that did not come through and happen. But they were companions, Aristarchus was companions with Paul all the way even back then. And so what we see here in the scripture is not only is Luke accompanying Paul, but Aristarchus, that Paul calls a fellow laborer, a fellow prisoner, is accompanying Paul as well. Folks, that's a big deal. It's not every day that a prisoner got traveling companions. Outside of those that are convicted to death, you know. It's not every day they got traveling companions. And so remember, as far as we know, Festus could not lay a finger on any charges against Paul. Agrippa come and hurt him. Couldn't said, man, if this guy hadn't appealed to Caesar, he'd be set at liberty. They never laid anything to his charge. Amen. And so perhaps all of this is to Paul's advantage because now he is on his way to Italy, to Rome, and he has the companionship of both Luke and Aristarchus. Now, it also goes to reason, again, we don't want to forget that Paul's a Roman citizen. And to Romans, that ranks very high, especially since Paul didn't buy his, but he was born a Roman citizen. Amen. And no doubt, as Festus is handing over Paul to Julius, he's telling Julius, you know, I can't lay no charge to this dude. He's a Roman citizen. You know, informing him about all that, and it could possibly be, I just say that, possibly be that even Paul's a Roman citizen, you know, allowed him a little leadway here with having a couple companions like Luke and Aristarchus on his way to Italy. Not only that, everybody doing okay? Not only that, remember, what is Luke? What is his occupation? 
doctor. Luke is a doctor. He was a physician. And as we will see here very shortly, a little later, uh, Paul, it seems like to some measure, was ill or sick at this period in time. So maybe Luke was, was able to go along on the trip because Paul is sick and he needs to make his appeal, you know, to Caesar and he really hasn't done anything wrong. Or as some scholars believe that Luke and Aristarchus could have been accompanying Paul and if there was no other reason, the only way they could accompany Paul is if they both made themselves slaves of Paul, which is interesting. That they could... If, if none of those other reasons are the reasons, and that was the reason, the only way that they could be accompanying him is if they made themselves slaves of him. Then do you understand the measure of love and appreciation that they had for Paul, saying, we're not going to allow you to go on this trip alone, and in order to secure that, we'll make ourselves slaves to you just so that we can go on this journey with, with you. Folks, you talk about rejoicing with them that rejoice and weeping with them that weep that these two would make themselves slaves to Paul just so that he wouldn't make this trip by himself. Just so that he would not appear before Caesar per se by himself. Just so that they could say, Paul, Whatever you go through, we're going to go through this with. That's heavy. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 26, and you can change it for that. Amen. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 26, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. I'm telling you today, I, I'm telling you, uh, regret's probably not the, the, the right word, but I'm telling you with remorse today as a pastor and just as an individual, I'm not confident that we have this perfected yet in the body of Christ. I'm not confident that we have this perfected yet. Personally, I can tell you flat-footed, personally, I know I've failed at times to identify with people and where they were living at different times in their lives whether that be their time of rejoicing or their time of sorrow now if you if you signed up and you made yourself a slave to every individual when they were going through their high time or low time man print yourself out a certificate and put it on your wall but I'm telling you right now that I've failed oh yeah I've failed as much as I get the calls that come in about what's going on and what's taking place, say, okay, we'll pray, and I do, absolutely. I, I, that's, I do not lie whenever I say that. I go to God and I go to prayer. But to really just sit there and ponder all the implications of what's happening in that moment for that person, the ripples of the water that's taking place, I can't say I just sat there and really mull it over my mind, Sister Rhonda, to the place that I am moved emotionally as though it was happening to me. But to rejoice when they rejoice and to weep when they weep means that I got to put myself as though I'm a part of their household, a slave. And whatever they go through, that didn't just, if, if those people were really Paul's slave, then whatever happened to him would ultimately affect them. I don't know. I'm just not confident that we've perfected that. 
yet. But Aristarchus was willing to do what was necessary. He wasn't going to allow Paul to go at this along Aristarchus if you think about it has already subjected himself to mishandling being a traveler and companion of Paul being taken into the theater he's already subjected himself to some danger back in Ephesus because of his association with Paul and now he's saying guess what Paul I'm going to suffer alongside you on this trip whatever happens whether it be well or whether it be not so well I'm going to go along with you on this trip why because we're members of the same body, the church. We're members of the same body, the church. And members of the body, the church, don't suffer alone. And they don't get honor alone. I think what Aristarchus was conveying to Paul was this. Paul, you shouldn't have to take the trip or suffer through the storm by yourself. Acts 27 and verse number 3 going on. We'll make some headway. Don't worry about it. But hey, we've been clipping off a chapter a week here lately, so. And the next day we touched at Sidon. So they left Caesarea. The next day they touched at Sidon. And Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. Can you give me my map back, please? See, there we are. Caesarea to Sidon. Boom, boom. Next day. So it must have been a pretty short trip. As a matter of fact, it's about an 80-mile trip from Caesarea to Sidon. And again, they're on just a little coastal, little coastal boat. It's going to hop from place to place along the shoreline, unloading goods or collecting goods. Amen. And so they must have went to Sidon for that particular purpose. If not, they would just be lined on up. They must have had something to unload or something to get. So they stop at Sidon, so there's going to be some unloading time. None of that takes, you know, place without time passing by. So you got a little time on your hand while they unload the boat, reload the boat. You understand, Brother Terry, when those days of driving the truck, you had to get unloading it. It takes some time. Amen. Whether it's a boat or truck or just your back seat of your car. It takes time. And so with some time, Julius, understanding Paul's a Roman citizen, understanding Paul really hasn't done anything wrong, knowing that he can trust this dude. He says, Paul, you can go on here and decide and you can meet up with friends that you might have in this area and you can be refreshed. All right? You, you can be refreshed. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, Paul's received some really good treatment from the Roman officers in his life. And largely due to them knowing he's a Roman citizen by birth. Amen? Because Paul's not one to purposefully cause trouble. All the trouble that he's causing in his life, man, it was, you know, it's other people saying he's causing trouble. And he thought, man, I'm just doing the will of God. <laughs> and so no one has to worry about Paul. You couldn't just let any prisoner do that, honey. They're going to be home free somewhere, you know. They're going to be tucking tail and running. But Paul, we can trust him. And besides that, we know we can trust Paul because this trip is Paul's ticket to Rome and that's what God's will is for his life. But although the Bible says Julius said he could go, he could go with his friends at liberty to do so, to refresh, the Bible says, to refresh himself. That word refresh has to do either with hospitality or care, but it actually is a medical term. It has to do with medical care in particular. It indicates then that Paul may have been sick. Now, I think he's been incarcerated for two years. 
He's been incarcerated, not necessarily in the most favorable of circumstances, situations, or surroundings. So he may have needed some medical attention. Dr. Luke was along there, but maybe there were some plies. Maybe there were some friends there that could actually help him. So he went to refresh himself, attend to the apostle Paul. Now going on now, I, might, I don't know if I can do this. This is where the over-the-ear mic would be very handy. I thought about having somebody read for me, but that is so like old school. But used to, you couldn't be anointed unless somebody read for you. Matter of fact, there's some preaching I hear today that there's still people having people read for them. I'm thinking, son, I don't know what they're barking up, but that's great and everything. You was really something you had somebody read for you, man. You were like, woo, Pentecostal power happening. Hallelujah. Look at verse, look at verse number three or four, rather. And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Verse number five. And when we had sailed over the sea of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, the city of Lycia. Uh, uh, stop right there. Go back to my map. Here we are, our little geography journey here. I'll try to keep this here. The Bible says that they left there and they, sealed under, they sailed under Cyprus. Now, that might be confusing to some. They said, Brother McGee, that looks like that's going over Cyprus and not under Cyprus. Well, going under Cyprus is a nautical term. It means the lee side of Cyprus. And for everybody that don't know nautical terms, including me, I had to look it up and see what that meant. And that meant they went along the side of Cyprus that was not getting the most wind. All right? So the lee side of anything, whether it be boat or island, is the side that's not getting as much wind as the other side. And so evidently going through here, because you got all this landmass, it's not getting as much wind. So although the Bible says under, it's a nautical term that means the side with less wind, which in this case was over. And so they went over Cyprus to Myra right there. Now along the journey, you'll see here, here's Cilicia and here's Pamphylia. Those are regions, these are countries, so to speak. And so they're going along the sea, along the borders of those countries. And they land at this one called Lycia and they're at the city of Myra. Is everybody all right? So they traveled along there. They traveled along on the lee side or under Cyprus. All right, because they were less affected by the wind. So what we see already is we're already having some problems with the wind early in this journey. And so they're traveling where it's less likely to impact them. They make it to Myra. And the Bible says in verse number six. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria. Where do you think the ship's from? job you learned something tonight and there the centurion found a ship of alexandria sailing into italy that's where we want to go all right sailing to italy and he put us therein and so back to my map and so they've traveled along here from the ship of adramitium that's probably where it's going to go so they know the centurion says we got to find another ship that's headed where we need to get to I mean, this little thing's done good. It's headed this, you know, further west. But here at Myra, he finds a ship of Alexandria. And thanks me, it's on its way to Italy. And that's what we need to do. So, guys, we're going to have to get off this ship. And we're going to have to get on this ship for we, so we can get to Italy. And so the little coastal ship, of course, is going to head back its way up in the Aegean Sea, up to, to where it came from, of course. And now they are on the ship of Alexandria. And they are headed to Italy. Centurion's been keeping his ear open for all of this. Amen. 
Now, the ship of Alexandria, I know, folks, this is geography, and this, but this will help your understanding of Acts 27. You'll never read Acts 27 and know it like you know it tonight. You see where Alexandria is there on Egypt down there? You see that? Alexandria. It went straight up here, and it's headed over here. Alexandria, then, is not just a little coastal. It's not a coastal ship. It's a larger ship. It's more of a sea-going ship. As a matter of fact, we'll learn later in Acts 27, because of all the wheat and the different things that were upon it, it was a grain ship. As a matter of fact, it was large enough, according to historians, ships of that day that were used for the purpose of grain could be every bit of 140 feet long, 36 feet wide, 33 high from the bottom to the top of the ship. Now, here's the thing, though. Because don't you all start thinking about, man, twin motors on this thing? No. This ship is motorless. This ship does not have engines. This ship still is propelled by this. Across the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> 140 feet long. They say normally it had one mast or one sail that was square to catch the wind to help. One. You understand what I'm talking about? I mean, my kid has, you know, kids' sailboats that have one sail. This thing's 140 feet by 36. And one sail that's propelling it across the water. And then the wind's changing, right? And the rowing. And no doubt they're better built than the little coastal ships, but still, this is a large undertaking to be on the open sea. They were still, by all regards, no competition with the storms that could arise on the sea. The Bible says in verse number 7, and this kind of goes without saying, but not only is it big, not only is it being rowed by human hands, not only does it only have one sail, but you have winds that are not cooperative right now. And the Bible says, and when we had sailed slowly, <laughs> you, are, you are listening about the speedboat right now. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce we were come over against Snidus, it's on the map, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete, again, that's Lee side, over against Salmone, and hardly passing it, came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lacia. Show me my map. Show me the money. <laughs> Show me my map. So here they are. They take out on their journey. But the wind is hard. It's very slow going from here to Snidus. They barely, barely even get there to Snidus. What they realize when they get there, the wind is so contrary to them, they can't continue in this direction. So they say, we're going to go down here to the, the under, under Crete or the lee side of Crete. All right. We're going to go there. So evidently there's some northern winds coming because if, if, if that's the lee side, there must not be wind coming from that side. It must be coming from the other side. Use your noggin. And so they're under here, and they said they just got past uh, Salmoni. And I know, I, I would just want to call it Simone, but that's not how it's pronounced in the Bible, Simone, all right. And so they come across here, and they land. It's like, Eureka! Fair havens! Right? Okay. Myra to Snidus, about 130 miles. Slow trip. That means 
Well, for one, it's a big boat. They're trying to row number two. There's a lot of wind. They land at Fair Havens. Now let me continue with my Bible study. Verse number nine. I'm going to read verses nine through 12, and then we can conclude this in the next 50 minutes. Now when much time was spent, look at this again, much time being spent, slow sailing. It's important that you grasp onto these terms here. Now when much time was spent, because they're at Fair Havens, and when sailing was now dangerous, so see, they're ported at Fair Havens here, but they spent some time there. And when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, we'll look at that, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading, which is the cargo, and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship, or the captain and the owner of the ship, more than those which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven, that is fair havens, was not commodious to winter in, the more part, advised to depart thence also. In other words, they took a vote. If by any means they might attain to Phoenicia, I know that's not how you would think you'd say, but that's the way it's pronounced in the Bible. Phoenicia and there the winner, which is a haven of Crete, it's on the Crete Isle as well, lie toward the southwest and northwest. Now look at this. Sail has already been difficult. Sailing has already been slow. The winds were not cooperating with them in their selling adventure. They had already been contrary. The winds had already been contrary to the ship. And from what we can tell, they have already sailed in whatever direction they could, whatever route they could to avoid the most wind. They weren't even per se sailing according to plan. They were just sailing according to wherever the least amount of wind is. So their trip is already being influenced by the wind because they're sailing where the least amount of wind is. All right? And note now, the Bible states to us in verse number 9, sailing on the open waters has went from just being difficult to now becoming dangerous. And by some means, they made it to Fair Havens, and evidently they spent much time there, the Bible says in verse number 9. I don't know what they were doing. But they lost some time at Fair Havens. They spent some time there at that port. And now, according to Scripture, according to verse 9, they are entering that time of year when it isn't safe in that day to sail on the sea at all. The Bible says that the fast was now already passed. The fast was just another way that they referred to the Day of Atonement. We know from the Old Testament that the Day of Atonement was normally, in our literal calendars, normally somewhere in September or October. Normally, because they went by lunar calendars. Sometimes it was September, sometimes it was October for us. So it was during that time of year. They said that was already over. And here is the knowledge of the culture of this day that every seller knew that selling was dangerous from the mid-September time of the year to the mid-November time of the year, and it was virtually impossible from mid-November until February of the following year. And so what Paul here is saying is very knowledgeable. The Day of Atonement has already happened. We already, in, in September, October time, he said, it isn't going to get better. It's going to get worse. Now listen, Paul may have not been a captain of a ship, 
He might not be the captain of a ship or a ship owner, but he's not a novice either. Because in his personal portfolio, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which he wrote before this trip, he stated in there that thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. So although he might not be a captain, he's not ignorant either. He's been through shipwreck. He's been through a night and a day in the deep. So he's saying, hey, just listen up. But this looks awful familiar, guys. Let me just check my journal and just see if I wrote about this or not, you know, because this, is, this looks awful familiar right here. I don't think this spells good. This is damaged. This is hurt probably to the vessel and even maybe to some lives. So Paul had suffered shipwreck three times before. He had been on vessels that undoubtedly had been subjected to contrary, unfavorable winds before. And so with those negative experiences, I'm sure you can't get shipwreck off your head. With those, well, I mean, just getting on the boat is just a big thing for Paul probably. I've already been through three shipwrecks, let me tell you right now. If it wasn't for God's will for me to go to Rome, I think I'd walk this thing. And will you remember back in the, the times that we looked at different times, there's times that Paul could have took by sea, but he instead took by land. I don't know if you'll remember that, but he did. I don't know if that's because he'd been in shipwreck before. I kind of get gung shy, you know. You want to go boating? Eh. You know, it's not all that. Huh. Been there. And so here he is. He's been in all this place before. And he's convinced. And he tells them. He does it just, it just isn't in his head. He tells them. He, he tells them that if you try to go further, hurt, damage, loss of cargo and ship, lading and ship, even our lives possibly could result. But they're going to continue on. They feel, Brother Zach, that they might gain, they might gain something by going just a little further. But listen to me, because they're going to go from Fair Havens and they're going to go to the next little haven, Venice, which I believe is about 40 miles. About 40 miles. Can you see it up there? Here they are, Fair Havens. See Venice right there? It's called Phoenix on here, but Venice, that's about 40 miles. They're wanting to go that little distance of 40 miles rather than stay where they're at because what they feel like they might gain in continuing here's what they better realize when it's all said and done what you might gain in continuing is going to cost you more than what you really want to pay they they are at this point brother mason they are not necessarily interested in getting to italy they just want to go 40 miles. That's really the crux of the story here. I think many times we're thinking they wanted to go on to Italy. That isn't necessarily the case. Read the scripture again. They just want to go to a haven 40 miles away. But wanting just 40 extra miles or a different haven from Fair Haven would in the end cost them being about 500 miles off. saying Pastor McGee I'm saying this shipwrecked is a great story to hear somebody tell but it's a horrible story to have to live yourself 
honey, we would all gather around. And I said, I tell you what, this next coming Wednesday, we're going to have somebody here that spent 30 days out upon the water in the shipwreck. Honey, we would pack this place out. People eager to hear about all the hardship and how they made it through and survived, and blah, 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 blah. And that's a great story, but that isn't a story that you necessarily want to live. Paul saying, thrice I've been shipwrecked. <laughs> Don't do it, guys. Let me tell you the story. Don't try to live it out in your own life. But the centurion, the Bible says, everybody doing okay? Great. The centurion says that he ignores Paul. All right? He ignores Paul, and he believes the master or the pilot of the ship and the owner more so than Paul. And so they're going to go ahead and try to sell those 40 extra miles to Phoenice. Again, they're not trying to make it to Italy here. They're just trying to make it 40 extra miles to what they consider, we're going to get there in a moment, a better haven. It's on the Isle of Crete too, just 40 miles. Why, why do you guys want to go to this better haven? Here's why. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. Luke gives us a few little clues. Remember, again, the winds are contrary to them, have been on this trip. They're moving slowly, right? Verse 7 talks about we had sailed slowly many days. Verse 9, again, whatever, whatever distracted them while they were at Fair Havens, they spent much time there, according to Luke. And so what, what's going on? Well, they're just not getting as far on their journey as they would like to get on their journey. And you know what crops up whenever things are not happening as quick as you would like them to happen? This word, impatience. You know why they wanted to go just the extra 40 miles to, per se, a better haven? Because they were getting impatient because they hadn't went that far already. I'm raising my hand. Guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. I would dare say some of the shipwreck of my own personal life has been due to impatience because I thought I was not as far along as I thought I should have already been. And so I'm going to spearhead this thing and go anyway. Oh, yeah. And so you're impatience of wanting just to go the extra distance took you so far from where you were supposed to be. So that's one reason probably they wanted to go to this better haven. Secondly, the Bible says this fair haven, according to, to those who mattered, the majority as it would seem, the fair haven was not commodious to winter in. Let me put it in layman's terms. It just wasn't comfortable. Just wasn't comfortable. I mean, I guess it was just really just fair, huh? But the Greek word for fair is this. Of, it has an uncertain affinity. It means properly beautiful, but chiefly good, literally or morally, valuable or virtuous. As a matter of fact, the same word that's used for fair here is the same word that's used for good when it speaks of good seed that was put in the ground in the parable of the sower. The good ground that the seed was put in. The same word good that's used for the good fruit that the good tree is going to produce. Good works. Now, I think that's pretty fantastic because all those things, good ground, good fruit, good works, good seed, are all things that are looked up to in the sight of God. Yet they were saying this good or fair, valuable, virtuous, good, literally a morally place wasn't good 
for wintering in. Think with me. Because if you're trapped for several months at a port in a harbor, what are you going to do all winter? You know what I mean? I mean, you're going to be in port for a winter. You want to have something to do, right? I mean, you want to be ported next to a city that's got some entertainment and extracurricular activities. You don't just want to do shuffleboard on the ship all day. You understand what I'm talking about? They, they had to have something that was going to fill their time for several months. These guys wanted something to do. I mean, I guess it must not have had as many activities as they wanted. But they did already lose a lot of time at Fair Havens before they ever left. So there must have been something to do. But when it really comes down to it, it just wasn't comfortable for them. Shipwreck, yes. How many times have people suffered shipwreck? Because it just wasn't comfortable for me right where I was at. Kind of restrictive. I, I don't have the ability to do everything I would like to do. advised selling lastly lastly they want to go to the next haven because it was more commodious and because of this because they took a vote right Bible says they took a vote more or less in verse 12 it says the more part advised to depart thence also they took a vote how many people wants to go to Phoenicia everybody hands are going up except Luke Aristarchus and Paul we do you know we already spent some time here at Fair Haven we really want to have a good time all winter, somewhere more comfortable. We'll be further along 40 miles on our trip when we travel again. So they took a vote, and the majority decided to move on. I know it stands good in church politics and government politics, but beware of the majority vote in Scripture. Because the majority said we cannot conquer the land of Canaan. And 40 years later, they're traveling back over the Jordan again to finally get it. The majority said of Israel, give us a king. And they rejected God as their king and took Saul. Didn't that work out for them? The majority said we have no king but Caesar. Loose Barabbas. Everybody hearing what I'm talking about right here? So the majority said, let's go. Stupid. So again, whenever this is all said and done, I'm closing at home, folks. You better be glad I'm not traversing the whole 44. When this is all over, again, the ship we have is going to be have driven four, 500 miles off course because it tried to make a 40-mile unadvised trip. And listen to me, every reason why they tried to make that 40-mile trip, trip is totally pointless in the end. Because listen to me, and you will see this next week, and as everything plays out, ultimately they're trying to go somewhere more commodious, commodious haven, right? They're trying to get there because maybe they're impatient because they should have already been there. Well, look at the time that they lost being lost at sea. So what's the big deal of trying to go 40 miles whenever you lose more time and distance in the process? Not only that, oh, but the comfort level, it's not commodious. Let me ask you something. Do you think the stress level of being on a turbulent sea 
was comfortable? Do you think the fear that was invading their lives, being at the threat of death on sea, was comfortable? Let me ask you, you know, when those billows rise and fall, I guarantee you there's probably nobody on the ship that's not without being seasick. There's not enough Dramamine in the world to help 50 and 70 foot swells. How comfortable is that? Because you want to go your little 40 miles. And then that insult to injury, when it's all said and done, the majority, the 276 people that's on the ship, guess what? They're going to be spared because of the minority. So 40 miles because it should already happen quicker. 40 miles because it's more comfortable. 40 miles because the majority decided all that is pointless in the end. All those things are nixed because it takes more time. They are probably <laughs> most discomfort in their life. And then it's the minority then that really chooses their life or death. The moral of the story, whenever it's unadvised to sail, don't sail. Don't sail. Stand with me tonight and I'll bring you to a quick close. Next week we'll start looking about how you handle storms at sea. Handling storms at sea next week. And I won't make no promises that we'll get to verse 44, but I'll endeavor to do so. Amen. Hallelujah. It's about our heads tonight. Father, I love you here this evening. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.